Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. We hope you enjoy our journey through the book of Acts, exploring the many powerful actions of Jesus Christ as he continues to move and teach us through his apostles by his Holy Spirit, empowering the explosion of the church to expand from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, which is you and me right here and right now, where we move from spectators to participants and join with Paul in preaching the gospel with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's now join Pastor Jordan Moody in our new series, Acts, The Movement Begins. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. So I'm going to give you a little behind the scenes of what I do while Pastor Jordan is preaching. In our, in our series in Acts, especially the past few weeks, uh, there's, there's been a lot of persecution, uh, a lot of trials that have been mentioned throughout the early church, and especially as the, the, the disciples kind of gather together and figure out how do we continue to move what Christ set forth here on his time on earth and, and what he desired for the, as the church would grow, with that came persecution, and so there's, there's this idea that, that came to me, especially last week, is that it seems that the gospel and a life lived for God will absolutely attract persecution. And, and we're told in scripture that it divides. And so that, that got me down this rabbit trail, not all during the message, but it got me down this rabbit trail of what? All the things that are mentioned in Scripture about persecution and how, how if you're going to live what Scripture actually tells us to live, how it's not going to be popular. So I want to just give us a sampling of that. In John 15, if the world hates you, this is Christ speaking, he says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. Later on in John, I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Second Timothy, Paul points out, in fact, all who want to live as a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. First John 3, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. John 3, 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So there were a couple of thoughts that came to mind. The gospel and a life lived for God will attract persecution. It will absolutely divide. How many of us knew over this past uh, Thanksgiving season what topics not to bring up around the table? Religion probably was on that list. With family members who we know 
don't share what we believe about God and his word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We understand there are differences of opinions. One of the things that I find very frustrating and concerning is that us as Christians, when we view, especially our American culture, we become agitated, angry, and upset at a culture that seems to hate God. And yet we're told over and over and over again, the default state is darkness, is alienation from God. Darkness brings confusion. So what then, if the gospel divides, if the gospel attracts persecution, what then makes the gospel so attractive? Why would I want to live for God? Why would I want to pursue what his word says and what he calls me to, to live in, a, in a, just a few moments, we're going to be praying for a, a, our team that's headed to Nika, and at the end of the week, I'll be headed to India. Why would we go to places? Why would missionaries take the gospel, not just from our nation, but to any nation, to go into a culture that's unfamiliar, to face persecution, to face challenges? In India right now, Christians are being rooted out because they believe Christianity is absolutely destroying their culture and they hate Christianity. Why go? Why invest? Why spend the money? Why take the time? Why go? If it's just going to attract persecution, if it's just going to divide, then what then makes the gospel so attractive? Ephesians 2 is probably one of my favorite passages. I have a message I've, I've done on it before. And I want to share just the first 10 verses of that. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, we all, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And I've always teased if that's where your reading of the Bible ended for that day, it'd be quite disappointing. Ending on the fact that we are by nature children of wrath just like everyone else. We continue into verse 4, though. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were in love with darkness, just like everyone else, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk 
in them. We start with the assumption that the world is a dark place. There is no love for God. We also see that we have been called out from the darkness to be a light, not because of anything we have done, but because of God's mercy and grace. He has snatched us out of our blindness to the darkness that we are in. So then, the greatest miracle of all time is that the gospel breaks through the darkness and rescues those who loved the darkness. Light stands as the immovable reality that pierces the dark and provides hope to those scrambling in the dark. This is why, wherever we are, we engage in hard conversations. We represent Christ well that's why we cry out to the Lord for those who, even with our own family groups, are running a million miles away from God. This is why our hearts should be broken for the world. It will not be easy, but it is good. It is good. Let us be people that love Christ and his word so much that we can do nothing but be a light in a world that is so in love with darkness it doesn't even know it. Would our hearts be broken for the world, for our communities, and for our family members who don't yet know Christ. And may God show mercy on them so that he can pour out his grace on them. All right, with all that, I'm excited here to get into chapter 6 of Acts. So if you turn with me to Acts 6, verse 1 through 7, we're going to be looking at today. This is happening far too often. I was going to be going through verses 1, 1 through 15, and then, uh, well, it's Thanksgiving week, so I was like, we'll just do verses 1 through 7 this week. How about that? But there's a lot here, and I just didn't want to brush over and go through too quickly. And um, so, verses 1 through 7, and again, as God has timed it, uh, verse 6, and I think the very topic of today and, uh, is, is fitting for uh, the installation of a new elder and joining the team, that excitement that that brings. Very grateful for that. So, let's read Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Hellenists, kind of Greek-speaking Jews, against the Hebrews, kind of local Jews speaking there, Aramaic most likely there, but because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Verse 2, and the twelve, speaking of the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples, this early church there in Jerusalem, and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brother, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen 
a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and here it is, they prayed over them, and they laid their hands on them. Verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. I love this verse, verse 7. <laughs> the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. If you remember, this is taking place right after some of the persecution that just took place when Peter and them said, we obey God rather than men. They were released from prison and all of this. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this. We thank you, God, for the focus and emphasis on this service already on prayer. Thank you, God, for the power of a community and people coming together, filled with your spirit, praying over people. God, I'm grateful for that just visual that we've seen today. Thank you, God, that we join in with this church, the universal church meeting all over the globe in this very moment. We're grateful to have that picture, the cloud, the great cloud of witnesses that you speak about in Hebrews. God, thank you for that. We give you glory. We praise your name today. God, would you just speak to us through your word? You've revealed your truth to us. The scripture before us reveals great truth as your word speaks to us today. Would you please teach us? Would you transform us? And God, would you challenge us? Help us to be pushed a little bit today, wherever we find ourselves, that we'd be pushed closer to you, that we'd draw nearer to you, God, today. In Jesus' name, we pray, amen. So this week is really looking at this idea. The title is Stephen Ministry. Some of you may know a little bit about that already. We'll be talking about that in the middle of the sermon somewhat. But it will be focusing, kind of setting the scene for this person, Stephen, who's going to be taking uh, center stage next week and potentially the week after in chapter 7. If you are like Josh and you, you read and do other things during the middle of my sermon, then you can start reading ahead in chapter 7. And uh, chapter 7, you'll start seeing what happens at the end of chapter 6 into chapter 7. If you're not familiar with that story, Stephen is a very fascinating figure here at the early church. But we see here in chapter 6, Acts 6, this theme that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks, spotting the strategies of Satan. As Josh also mentioned, the theme that we have been seeing is this persecution coming against this exploding growth of the early church. And so we've been seeing this strategies of Satan, these three main things, and maybe some of you already know them or you've looked at them in your small groups, so we've looked at three of these. These three are borrowed from the, uh, from the theologian John Stott. He came up with these three words, really essentially, number one was persecution, do you remember that? Really this physical persecution, which is the most obvious outward attack upon the church and upon faith, this outward attack, this physical persecution. We've seen jailings, beatings, and threats so far. Last week, or the week before that, I believe it was, we looked at the moral subversion specifically that he uses, a little bit more subtle. It's through the attacks of Ananias and Sapphira that Satan really puts upon them and seeks to kind of undermine the authenticity and the righteousness of the church people in the community and seeks to kind of get underneath the skin and start to divert. And then this third one, which will become to the forefront today. This third major persecution, uh, sorry, major strategy of Satan that he uses is this professional distraction. And this, I say, is the most subtle, 
because it is hardest to spot. Because it's not always so clearly, obviously wrong. It's often used in an, um, a time where there's growth and there's lots going on. And there's so many good things that can distract you from the best things. And I think that's what we see Satan often do, is get people busy so that they forget about <laughs> really what it is they're called to be doing. And this is going to show up, obviously, in the leadership of the church. So forefront, as we've talked about elders already, this is going to be really a message that is thinking and considering the responsibility that elders and pastors of a church and the deacons have in the operation of a church. And yet also for any person attending a church and calls themselves a member of a church, a local congregation, this is for us. But I've also found, maybe it's just because it's in my own stage of life, I've got three kids under the age of seven, and I'm thinking to myself, my own stage of life, sometimes it's hard not to read into that while I'm studying this and preparing this sermon. And so sometimes in, in some ways, I also want us to think, as we are a church with a lot of families, a lot of kids, and I want us to also think about these three things as it relates not only to the church, to leadership in the church and service in the church, but also leadership in your own families. Because I think the application is not difficult to make. And I, I don't think it's difficult to make in result of thinking and seeing the church as a family of God. And yet each nuclear family in this room, in this place, has its own little bit of a church feel in the sense that you are in some ways operating as a mini example of the body of Christ. This family unit, this nuclear family. And I can see these same strategies, those three strategies that we, we talked about. Yes, coming after the church and in particular leadership in many ways. And yet, I can also see those same things coming after you and your families. You husbands, you wives, parents, and I would say even in grandparents in some way of these ways of looking at how, yes, there will be moral subversion and physical persecution, but I think in particular today the focus is what you could say the worship of the cult of over-busyness. <laughs> the cult of busyness. This, this, this distraction and busyness that sometimes seems impossible to avoid. It will come after your marriage and your kids and your family. Meaning if your priorities were misplaced and misaligned, then the very ones that you love will be uncared for and neglected. And that's what we see happen in this passage. There are widows, people who are desperately in need, who are supposed to be being cared for by the apostles in the church, are being neglected because they are being distracted. There is so much going on. And I don't need to ask for a raise of hands for moms and dads in here for how many of you feel like life is too busy right now. I feel distracted. And yet I also don't want to just burden you and make you feel like you're being condemned here. Frankly, you're here today. <laughs> it's a lot of work, right? To get up on a Sunday and come out to church and the busyness of it all and the dads and moms walking around in the trying to keep the babies asleep or whatever it is. And yet I want us all personally to introspectively think about where we are today. Where are, are our priorities? Where are your priorities today? And is God and the worship of God and the service of his church, is that the forefront of what we are setting up in the culture of our family unit 
And is that also what we are doing here as a church? And you're like, well, that should be obvious. Well, no. So many times what's truly important in a church can become less important because there's so many other things distracting us from what God is calling us to do. And like I said before, for you families, most of those things are not bad things. There's just too many of a good thing that you neglect the best and most important things in your life. And so I think that is just my start. I want to keep that in your mind as we walk through this passage. It's only seven verses. And yet we're going to walk through this, this idea. So the first point here is really the problem that we see happen right off the bat. Okay, verse one and two, we see the problem. It's just clearly laid out. The problem ultimately is a problem that is becoming so important, uh, it's so, so central that it's threatening to divide the very fledgling growing church here. The church is exploding in growth and it is really coming to a point where this could have been a major division in the early church and caused separation. And yet, the problem here, what happens is this, this, well, I guess you say the apostles hold it together, but we'll get to that point. What, what happens is this distraction with the growth, the amount of needs that there are in the endless ministry that was before the apostles, and also the subtle partiality that was being shown. It's alluded to here with the two groups. There's a certain level of prejudice, almost ethnic prejudice that's going on in the early church, and there's partiality being shown to one group over another, some of which isn't always clear whether it's intentional or unintentional, but it's happening. And so what you see here is this distraction. Like we've already mentioned, all good things that are happening. In fact, many of the things that were going on at this time, as it's described, are not wrong things or bad things, but there were too many things to attend to. That honestly, the apostles were stretched thin. They were unable to attend to their first priority, which we'll get to later on in the message, but what is their first priority that they make very clear? Their first priority is what's already been done today, prayer, and devoting themselves to the ministry of the word of God as it is preached and taught to the people. And so those two things, they were saying, this is going to be central for us, and we cannot devote ourselves to that when we are being stretched thin on every other level. And what we see here is some of you can relate to this at a very maybe organizational level in some ways, even in relation to perhaps your families or perhaps many of you who own a business. You understand as a business grows and, and becomes in a certain level, in a certain place, where now there are different things pulling and pushing on you. When you first founded that business, when you first started it, but now it's grown to such a level, now your role changes. How is it that you are to operate? Some would say, especially in a church culture, this is the relation that's being talked about, this tension. And I say tension because I think when you try to overemphasize one or another, you get something that is wrong. It's overemphasis of something. What the idea here is the tension between the organism the living, breathing organism, and the organization. And that's what's being displayed here in Acts 6. There's an organism that's living, breathing, and growing, and it is growing fast. In fact, the last couple of chapters, we've seen thousands and thousands of people go from following one direction, 180-degree turn, repent in the other direction, and now little churches are spotting up all over the place and, and, and Jerusalem is growing and there's this, this almost crowd that's gathering and the apostles are preaching, miracles are being done. Things are going crazy, if you could say, right? It's, it's so much of an organism. 
And it's, you could say, as we like to use the word, organic, <laughs> whatever that means, right? You know, and it's, it's growing. And yet, what happens as that grows is people are being neglected and are not being shepherded and are not being cared for. So what the dis- apostles recognize through the Holy Spirit is they need to establish an organization to help care for this organism. Does that make sense? And you have to be careful, and I'm just speaking maybe from a pastoral side of things, where we often find that tension. The elders would probably agree. We find that tension between the organism letting that grow and flourish and the organization. When one dominates the other, you have problems. When there is no organization, you have everyone doing whatever. And yet when there is no organism and it's all structure, framework, and this is what we do because we've always done get in line and don't ask questions, those kinds of organization, this is it. Read the manual, just follow the script. We lack the living, breathing, growth, and organic nature of the Holy Spirit. So what I'm saying is I see both of these here in this passage. And I think it's a wonderful, healthy example for us as we see that. And I think many of you know that in your own families, in your own businesses. And yet as it applies to the spiritual life of a church, it becomes very important. But this problem is more than just like uh, uh, overstepping or missing something. There's a real underlying prejudice going on here and partiality that results in neglect. So the idea is these Hellenists, these two H words that you see right at the beginning, verse one, right? It says, in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, so lots were going, there was increasing, a lot is happening, a complaint, a complaint happens, right? So this justifies complaints, right? Yeah, so don't fill my email inbox, okay, no. No, but there is a just complaint that is brought properly. Hey, these people are being served while these people are being neglected. And the apostles are recognizing, whoa, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. So there's a widows who at that time, and you could even start to lump in, is this a broader organization as it's described through the service of tables is a general term, almost this charitable ministry that's going on. The Hellenists are uh, Hellenism, this this idea of the Greek-speaking Jews. Okay, they are converts to Christianity now, but they are, their primary language and culture is Greek. The Hebrews are locals. The Hebrews, this Israel, this Jerusalem-born living Jews, they are converts now to Christianity. And interestingly enough, these two cultures now find themselves serving and worshiping the same God and going to the same church, and there's conflict, right? And you're like, well, that doesn't sound very much different than every church I go to today, right? It is. There's always been that because we are people, and people tend to operate in those different cultures, and the church is the most diverse organization on the face of the planet. It is the most diverse over the entire globe, a church in every country, every language, joining together in the same faith, you are going to have conflicts of different cultural backgrounds, ethnicities, languages that are being spoke. And how is it that the apostles are to lead that group? So the early church wasn't perfect. Now we have a perfect church here though, don't we, right? Yes. Why are you laughing? Okay, come on. Now I understand, right? And that's what I find from these passages. Like, okay, they were real people too. You and I are real people. Most of you, right? We're mostly real people, okay? And, and so we have, we share a lot in common that there is some conflict, there's some complaints, there is some issues going on. There is some neglect being shown. There's an unfair bias on one thing versus another is this idea of partiality. The partiality being shown to one group over the other. 
Let me just look at James chapter 2. I don't think we have a ton of time to look at this, but this chapter, um, this passage is extensive. James chapter 2, really much of the entire first 13 verses are about this concept of partiality, of favoring uh, one group over another. We, we even have a joke sometimes. We're like, well, certain sections of the church are the VIP sections. If you paid a little extra, donated more, you get the cushy chairs, okay? You guys are serving people by sitting in the black chairs, so you commend yourselves, right? The cushy, no, that's the idea. There's no partiality here in this church, right? We all come equal and even together, and yet it is easy to show deference and respect to others while neglecting other people. And so James 2 speaks heavily on this. It says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, verse 1 of James 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and, I'm wearing a gold ring, whoops, gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, Uh uh-oh, what's going to happen? And if you pay attention to the one who wears nice, fine clothing and say, you sit here in the nice cushy chairs, right? Good place. While you say to the poor man, hey, get back over there in the corner, stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you anyways? (laughs) And the ones who drag you into the courts? And are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourselves. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And so this goes on, and it's an extraordinary passage and a critique and something that we all need to take advantage of and consider. Okay, how is it that we are seeing people? Are we seeing them as things that ought to be moved and taken advantage of and manipulated or certain ones that we treat with respect and honor and others we reject because they don't look like us? These are very, very important things for the modern church in America to consider, and really the whole church over all time. This was a specific issue in Acts chapter 6, and that is something I guess is part of my heart here at the Hope and at this church. We've always tried to maintain a church that is welcoming and open to all, and I know as we talk about as elders, we know that we, our desire is that nobody would just fall through the cracks, but we recognize that this does happen sometimes. Perhaps maybe some of you have even felt like that at times. You felt maybe it's at this church or another church that you visited at some point in your life and your walk on this journey of Christian faith. You felt forgotten. You, you felt neglected. You maybe visited and nobody said hi to you. You visited at a place or you wanted to get involved and you felt pushed aside. You felt overlooked, whether justified or unjust. That feeling is not something we desire. And yet, Due to growth and a church that is growing in many ways, it can be easy to forget. It can be easy to overlook. It can be easy to not remember someone's name. But that's still no excuse. (laughs) We are seeking to constantly do a better job to be able to reach a minister and pastor. We work hard not to allow different cliques or prejudice versus one group or against another. We never want to have these separations, this exclusionary feel. We want you to feel welcome here to worship God freely in this place. But as a reminder that I am not your savior. (laughs) The elders are not your savior. (laughs) We are servants and under shepherds of the great shepherd. We will fail you at some point. We will forget your name. (laughs) 
We will at times not meet the standard of expectation that you have for us. And often that is due to our own misability to focus on what we're called to. But there is a greater shepherd who will never fail you. <laughs> there is a, a greater shepherd who loves you. And you know his voice and his sheep follow that voice and follow him. And he will lead you. He will guide you. He will protect you. So in some ways, we apologize when we have not met that. And yet at the same time, we're also asking for mercy and grace because we're all following the great shepherd anyways. <laughs> and we're all seeking to do our best with humility. And so that's a, a goal that I know we have here at Hope. And that's something that I constantly hear from others of, of this environment that just welcomed me. Come as you are. Let us come and worship God together. And we want you to be able to find a place or a space that meets where you are, where you can now grow together with us as a church. And that's our, that's our desire to come here and know Christ, to then grow in Christ, then get to a place where then you can serve others here in the church. And so what happens here is interesting because there's a problem that's going on. There's definite issues happening among the church. And yet, what we see is proper leadership comes in and it promotes unity. We see good, proper leadership. Strong leadership. And I hesitate to use that word. Because in today's culture, we so often see, in in whether it's church world or what, whatever, you call this, this leadership, whether it's weak leadership through abusing of others and manipulating others, or this idea of this domineering leadership, which the pastors and elders are called against in First Peter, not domineering the flock, but leading them and shepherding them. And so we see examples of this on the news. You see examples of it in churches all over the place, and we, I'm not necessarily acting as if that doesn't exist. What I'm saying is I do believe in strong, humble leadership, and I can say those two words in a row, this strong, meek leadership, that it is important that the apostles came in and they demonstrated strong leadership, yet with love. They said this is not right. This is not happening and I think it's a very important for us to consider the leadership the apostles had, what elders are supposed to do in a church, and what you, husbands, are supposed to be doing in your families. To demonstrate strong leadership that when there is something going wrong, that you are saying, this is what we're going to do. We're going to direct our priorities back on the worship of God, for we are getting far too distracted in many things that really just don't matter. And we are going to set a culture in our family that honors and glorifies God with our lives. And we're going to set precedent on that. Yeah, I'm going to fall and I'm going to fail in that sometimes. But I'm asking that we would seek God in that. And as a church and as an elder team, let's seek God in that. Let's devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And let us use the church and equip the church for the work of the ministry, as it says. And so the apostles called a meeting. They said, everybody, let's get together. They took initiative. And they took ownership. They didn't blame shift and say, well, why don't you guys do a better job than what you're supposed to be doing? Like, come on. And, and blame shift and call into question people's character. They didn't drag people through the mud. They took ownership upon themselves. The 12 summoned everyone together and says, Let, here's a plan. This is what we're going to do. And they made sure to not just say, here's what we're going to do and you listen to me. They set the priority that the priority from God to them, to the church, was first the worship of God, the prayer, and the ministry of the word. That is the priority. We cannot neglect that. So in order to continue to do that, we need help from others. We're getting stretched far too thin. And they say this very famous phrase. They say that it is, we will devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word, but before that it says it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God in order to serve tables. In fact, I bet every single one of them had been serving tables that week. So it wasn't that they were, well, that's below me <laughs> or beneath me. 
but it was the fact that I cannot serve in the charitable ministries of meeting the physical needs of the church and devote myself as the elders, as the apostles, to the ministry of God's word. This has got to be a team effort. And so they say right there, the seven are selected. Let us select seven men here, uh, qualified leaders to take care of the widows properly and continue to bless the church. They would also be overseeing, likely at that time, a lot of the money that has come in. As we looked at in the last couple chapters, people were donating their property and houses, giving the money to the church so that people's needs could be met. And so what's interesting that I find here is the words and the names that I had difficulty pronouncing was in verse five and six, all those names, Philip and Nicholas, and these are Greek names. Maybe I actually didn't notice that until this. These are Hellenist names. So there was a Hellenist group in the Hebrews, and many of the apostles are locals, Jewish, uh, and, and some of these things, like, they know that, right? They're not Hellenists. And so what's funny here is, not funny, this fascinating kind of thing is that they pick seven Hellenists, you could say, seven Greek men. Even Mike, one's a proselyte from Antioch. And so they select seven of these men to then lead and spearhead that ministry. So now there's greater unity in the church. These people are to be full of the spirit, full of wisdom. They didn't just ask for volunteers and a warm body. They wanted people who had a character that was willing to take on a very important task. And in some ways you could say this is kind of the foundational setting stone for what is known today as the deacons. Here at church we have the elder team and the deacon team. In, in very, they overlap in many ways. The deacons assist the elders in the work of the ministry. But in very many ways, the deacons are often overseeing uh, the ministry of mercy here at the church to those in need and the physical needs of the church. And the elders are overseeing the spiritual needs of the church. And yet those things coincide on a great many number of ways. But here we see that happening. We have the apostles and the seven here who are not officially deacons, but they are servants of the church in its early fledgling form before this begins to form and the organization begins to grow over the next couple of years. So they delegated the authority. They installed these ministers here, just like we did today, and installed an elder today. And then we see this character rise to the surface, this person named Stephen. We're gonna be focusing on him a lot next week, but Stephen is a fascinating character. Is an example of Stephen in the sense that he had this reputation among the people that he was to be a person as not only the others were to as well, but they were to be a people of good repute, it says, reputation, of the body was good. They were to be full of the spirit, filled with the spirit of God. They were to be full of wisdom. I love this idea of this connection between full of the spirit and of wisdom. Look at that in verse three. This idea of being full of the Spirit is the regular, ordinary, normal day life of a Christian. That you are to be walking in the Spirit and to be filled with the Spirit. It's not some super separate kind of thing that those people are filled and you are not. But there are this aspect of calling God to fill us with His Spirit to be able to serve Him in extra and extraordinary ways. So this was a man clearly known to be filled with the Spirit and you'll see that demonstrated at the end of chapter 6 but full of wisdom, full of wisdom. This idea of wisdom is being wise. It doesn't necessarily mean just this wise sage kind of idea. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan says, being wise suggests the best ends by the best means. They were to be men of sanctified common sense. There you go. Some of you might like to take that and tuck that away. Wisdom, sanctified common sense. That they were to be people wise in actions, 
kind of, you could say, book smarts and street smarts, right? They needed a little bit of both. They needed that common sense. Another word for this, as I found in a quote, was this idea of gumption. They had to be people of gumption. It's an older word that means this bold, common sense employed in enterprise or work. Proper use of having gumption, a bold common sense in work and to accomplish a task. So they speak, and he speaks not only here that he's a person of wisdom, but later on you'll see in verse 10 of Acts 6, that the people, when he spoke with wisdom, they could not contain themselves. They, they, they didn't want to hear what he had because he spoke with such wisdom. And Stephen specifically is called as a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Fullness of these things is this idea of being completely controlled. Being filled with the Spirit and full of faith is that his faith and his belief absolutely controlled him. And then this Spirit that is the guiding force within us, is the controlling power within us. And it's amazing to see Stephen later on preach boldly, work miracles and wonders, all the extraordinary things that we see in Stephen. And yet sometimes when we look at Stephen, we can see this extraordinary, unattainable person. And yet I love the the beauty of what we have here at church called Stephen Ministry. Perhaps some of you are aware of this. Um, I'm not sure if we have a slide of that, but Stephen ministry is something we do here at the church. And the word Stephen actually comes from this chapter of Acts chapter 6. This is a really global, a national organization. And we've begun employing this ministry of Stephen ministry over the last, oh, I don't know, four or five years or so, maybe longer than that. But Stephen ministry, as it says, offers a proven and effective way to organize and equip and supervise a team of congregation members here at Hope called Stephen Ministers to provide high quality, one-on-one Christ-centered care to people experiencing life's difficulties. What I like about this idea is to be able to serve and minister to somebody in need does not have to come just from the pastor or the elders or the deacons. But in fact, you can be trained as a lay minister to work in like, very much like Acts 6 is saying here with Stephen. That someone came in and helped support the ministry of the word that's going on by caring for people in one-on-one relationships. I believe Pam White is the director of Stephen Ministry here at the church. Many others have been involved in it over time. And it's something that I just wanted to bring awareness to because it is something that you can take an action step from Acts And you can take an action step to the point where it's simple enough for you to say, I'm not going to just read and look at this and leave, but I'm going to actually pray about maybe considering taking an opportunity to contact Pam or contact someone and be able to say, hey, I want to take an action step where I can become involved in helping minister to people. You'll be trained. It's not something we're going to just throw you into. But I love this idea that even the author, the founder of Stephen Ministry says, as a pastor, I came to the point where I realized I couldn't do it at all. I remembered back when it was Holy Week, we had a bunch of worship services and a bunch of people in the hospital. I was going back and forth from the hospital to working on sermons, working on sermons there and there. So one reason why I decided to start training lay people to do one-on-one care is because I couldn't do it all. A second reason is that because I was stretched so thin, I couldn't provide quality care that people really actually needed and people I loved. I was only one person. And the third reason is that there are lay people in the congregation who have gifts for one-on-one caring, and they want to use their gifts. I love that concept. 
We don't want you to feel as if you are being underutilized or overlooked. We want to be able to provide a variety of places where you can plug in and serve. And what I also love about this whole thing is so much of what goes on here that in the end of this passage, we see in verse 7, really verse 6 and 7, we see that the right priorities that are laid out through Stephen, through these deacons, you could say these servants that are selected, through the apostles' leadership, they lay out the right priorities and it results in multiplication. It results in the word of God continuing to explode and grow and increase. It's this idea, this principle, you could say, of first thing first, and as I think it's Lewis, I can't remember, but you'll get second things thrown in, okay? And it's this principle of ordering the priorities of your life. Not that church and worship and ministry and those things and Sunday, all that's kind of a, an add-on or a lifestyle choice next to everything else I do in my life. No, saying that we are gonna prioritize God first in this family and in this church and everything else if we have time is added on. That's a very different way at looking at what is truly important in life. And I'm speaking for myself, right? Aligning the priorities in order to promote unity in your home and in your family and to align the priorities of what's truly important for us as a church, to preach the word of God and pray and hopefully that there are many other things that we can do and will do and continue doing. But those are the priorities that we will not neglect. We will not put aside those things. Because that is what Satan is trying to do, not only in this church and in your family. He wants to distract you. He wants to keep you busy doing things and avoiding scripture and avoiding his word, avoiding gathering with saints, avoiding any aspect of growing because you're too busy. He wants us as an elder team to be distracted with the minutia of every little thing going on that we even forget to pray. Because when that head is exposed, distracted, looking at other places and things, the body is then far more exposed and is open for attack. So we must devote ourselves to truly what's important and also not lose sight of how important the regular people in need actually are. That that is so vital and important. And so in some ways, I'm, I'm kind of closing this with this concept of asking you to pray. To pray for us. Pray for myself. Pray for the elders especially. That we would be able to follow this pattern in Acts 6. That we would be able to focus on the spiritual health and priority of this church. And the direction and the vision that God is giving us for the next 5-10 years that this congregation has. And that we would lead in a humble and strong way. And I also ask that you'd pray personally about stepping up into some area of ministry or service. And I don't know what that is, but potentially the Spirit is encouraging your heart even today of what that might look like. Maybe it's an official capacity, maybe it's not. Maybe it's actually just ministering to a neighbor and, for, and into your own local neighborhood. And then what happens is when the church does this, when the priority and the leadership is strong and healthy and humble, and the people are serving, and the deacons are ministering to the needs, what happens is the church explodes in growth. Let's read Acts 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and even a great number, many of priests, became obedient to the faith. Love this idea. We see this explosion of growth going on. Let's get... And so in a way, I'm asking you to pray for us. I'm asking you to get excited about this. Because <laughs> I see this happening even right now. 
I see this happening in this crazy group of people that's in front of me that I look at every Sunday, okay? And that's a good thing, right? I'm seeing this happen. I'm seeing people serve. I'm seeing people sacrifice of their life, time, their talents, their resources. I'm seeing young people come to the faith and old people come to the faith and everything in between. I'm seeing churches grow, families be strengthened, marriages put back together. I see a lot of this happening. And so when I read a passage like this, I'm like, Lord, I have so much more to do and I'm not doing enough. But I don't know if that's necessarily the right thought of, Lord, what can I do? What opportunity would you put in front of me to continue the ministry that's already happening? And I think if we follow Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. We focus on his kingdom. We get busy serving that kingdom and serving the king of kings that we sang about earlier. And I believe God will continue to increase and multiply this congregation and the gospel will advance from the Monadnock region all over the globe. That's the goal. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for that. That goal that we set out, that reminder of how you're working and what you've done in your church. God, I, I pray that you would continue to give your spirit to us, to, as we looked at Stephen today, to fill us with that spirit in ways that empower us for ministry. We would not be trying to serve out of our own emptiness, but God, we would be filled up with your word, that we would pray over people and their needs, that we would seek to meet those needs if, you, if we are able. And God, I pray that you would help us to follow you as the great shepherd. God, give us strength in that encourage our hearts in that. Lord, would you build this church, continue to build all that you're doing here in this place, increase our body, both in growth and, yes, spiritual life, but numbers physically, Lord, as more souls could come to faith. We pray for that. In Jesus' name.